Friends, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be reading this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll read the entire chapter. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers at the back might bring you a church Bible. And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 900, I believe, 930 in Thank you, brother. <laughs> Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I should just read what's on here. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be reading chapter, um, sorry, verse 1 to 17. Thank you, Josh, for the save. I would have started reading First Thessalonians. Let's turn to the Lord's word now. So again, we'll be reading from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the, Lord, the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked, wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, establish grace. Forgive me. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, 
Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your Bible again and open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this uh, morning. We're going to pick up from where we left off and look at verses 13 to 17. As you're doing that, please join me as I pray again. Father, the the song that we just sang is our prayer. Holy Spirit, please come. Lord, I feel uh, an acute awareness in myself that what I am about to do, Lord, I cannot do apart from your strength and your help. As we open up your word, Lord, give us much grace. Spirit, lead us, guide us, illuminate our minds, and sanctify our hearts so that we would be more like Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. A few years ago, when Kathy and I first got married, we went on a little vacation to Florida. And of course, being who I am, I have a mild obsession when it comes to fishing. I decided to do some deep sea fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. What else would you do in Florida? (laughs) So I looked around and I found a fishing charter boat that was going to take us out. We made reservations, it was all planned out, but the problem was there was a good chance that the trip was going to get canceled because there was a big storm that was brewing in the distance and making its way over in our direction. After assessing uh, the development and the direction of the storm, uh, eventually, to uh, my own joy, the the captain decided that we're going to go out as planned, but he did warn us it wasn't going to be a calm trip. He was expecting us to hit some pretty rough waters, and of course, from his 25 years of experience, he was right. On our way out, we quickly found ourselves in 10-foot swells of water. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out on a boat in the wide open ocean where the storm is coming, the winds are blowing, and the the waves are, are rising. It is not really a safe experience. The, the storm wasn't even directly over us, but it affected the waters enough that the boat was rocking and, and bobbing like crazy. Th- there were actually a couple of times where my feet were off the ground and I was suspended in midair when the boat would ride up the wave and then just suddenly drop on the other side. Needless to say, half the people on the boat were seasick, including my poor wife. Uh, she did not come on a fishing trip with me after that trip. <laughs> Some people were puking over the side rails. But the greatest concern and the greatest danger in these conditions was getting thrown off the boat and into the deep, rough waters of the Gulf of Mexico. And so the most important thing that we could do while we were out there on the open waters was to find something secure and hold on to that for dear life. You see... Christians, living in this world is a lot like being on a small boat while you are go- going through hurricane-level storms. Yes, of course, there are peaceful and quiet days that we're meant to savor and enjoy as a little taste of heaven and the glory that is to come. But oftentimes, as we're going along our way, living life, serving others, worshiping the Lord, and being fishers of men, unexpected storms appear out of nowhere, and we are forced to navigate through the raging tempest of life. Let me just ask you a quick question. How many of you are feeling pretty beat up by the world here today? 
right? Life is hard. When the unexpected happens, when tragedy hits, when circumstances change for the worse, life can be so disorienting and discouraging, the winds and the ways of this world just sometimes hit you like a rock. We've been studying a lot about the Thessalonian Christians over the last few weeks and how they were specifically sailing and suffering through the storms of affliction. For for them, they were bombarded by the winds and the ways of the world in the form of persecution, false teachings, and as we'll see in chapter 3, temptations to sin. And and where we are today in chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, is the place where Paul calls on these believers to hold on for dear life. Hold on to that which is eternally secure. Hold on to that which will never break and never fail under pressure. My dear brothers and sisters, as you are sailing and suffering through the storms of life, what you must do is hold on to the truth that is found in God's sacred word. Get a death grip on the word of God and don't ever let go. Anything else that you try to hold on to, whether it be your your strength, your abilities, your job, your responsibilities, your, your money, your relationships, your status, whatever it is, if you are holding on to any of these things, trusting that it will keep you safe and secure in the storms of life, it is only a matter of time until you get thrown off the boat. You know why? Because the Bible makes it clear that everything else in this world is perishing. Everything else in this world will fail. Everything else in this world will fade away but the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. The word of God is that indestructible railing on the side of the boat that you must hold on to while you you are sailing through the storms of life. That is the main point of our text today. And we're going to take the time to flesh this out a little more in the sermon, but before we get there, here's what I want you to see first. Even when you're caught up in the fiercest and most dangerous storms of life, as as troubling and as scary as that may seem, you can find rest for your souls. Of course, not in your circumstances, but in what God has done for you, is doing in you and will do for you. That's where Paul begins in this text. Point number one, rest in God's saving work. Now, as Paul thinks about what God has done for these Thessalonian Christians, he's once again moved immediately to gratitude. As a matter of fact, he feels an obligation, a moral obligation to express gratitude to God. Look with me at verse 13. He begins by saying, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, the word there, because, because is, is, is important. It, it explains to us and it tells us why Paul feels morally obligated to thank God. And as you can see in the text, it's because God chose you. He chose us. But before we talk about God's choosing and electing them for salvation, I I don't want you to miss that little phrase that he almost casually adds in there before the word because. Look again at verse 13. Before he talks about how they are chosen by God, he talks about how they are 
loved by God. And that's worth pausing on for a moment because the love of God is actually what frames everything that he's about to say. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. I mean, just think about it. How important it was for these Thessalonian Christians to hear about the love of God, especially in the midst of their difficult circumstances. As we're reading through this text, we always need to remember the context of what was going on. These Thessalonians were living right in the middle of the fiercest storm of persecution. They were experiencing a kind of hatred and animosity that they have never experienced, in the, never experienced before. And it's quite possible that in the fury of the storm of persecution, they began to question and even doubt God's love for them. Hasn't that ever happened to you before? When life just hits you hard and you are thrown into such a chaotic situation and you're feeling hurt, haven't you ever asked the question in your own heart, Lord, Lord, if I am a child of God, if I am your child, how can you be doing this to me? I think we all know to some degree, the temptation to question God's love for us. And so, in in, in order to push hard against all the doubting and all the confusion, Paul throws in these little reassuring words of certainty and comfort. You are loved by God. The world may hate you, but God loves you, and his love for you is greater than the world's hatred for you. He is for you and not against you, and there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying this nice little thing here as a hypothetical idea that really doesn't have any substance or strength. On the contrary, his love is very real and very powerful. Now, let me just give you a little quick caveat here regarding the rest of verse 13 and 14. The Scottish theologian and preacher James Denny called these two verses a system of theology in miniature. A system of theology in miniature. Basically, Paul is taking massive Christian truths and he is condensing all of it in just a few words. That means that we're about to cover a ton of deep and heavy theological truths in just a short period of time, which is going to be a lot. (laughs) But what I'm going to endeavor to talk about in the next few minutes, our brother Patrick is actually going to take 10 full weeks to talk about in detail in his Wednesday night foundations class. Patrick is going to teach a 10-week series on the doctrines of God's sovereign saving grace, and and that series is really going to flesh out what we're going to talk about briefly here. So, as we go through this part of the text, there might be things that you don't fully understand, and there might be questions that you still have, and, and that's okay. I really just want to encourage you to sign up for that class and attend that class on Wednesday night. That way, you can ask all of your hard questions to Patrick. Okay, coming back to our text now, we can see God's very real love in his saving work. This isn't 
abstract. This isn't a hypothetical good idea. This is a very real love of God seen in his saving work. And his saving work begins with his sovereign choice from before the foundations of the world to choose you to be saved. Look at verse 13 again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Just a quick note on the word first fruits. If you look down at the footnote in the ESV Bible, you'll see that there's actually another way to translate that word. The other translation is because God chose you from the beginning. And if it means that, then it means something a little bit different from what we have recorded in the main text. Now, now the reason for this dual interpretation is because the Greek word for both first fruits and the beginning are actually very, very, very similar to one another. And within some of the earliest manuscripts that we have of this letter, some of those manuscripts use the word first fruits, and the other manuscripts uh, use the word the beginning. But both interpretations can make good sense of this text and still be accurate. But I am of the opinion that the footnote translation is the better one. I think that Paul is referring to God's electing love from the beginning because for one reason, it's how he talks about election in other texts in the Bible. Take, for instance, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the text that we read uh, earlier for our call to worship. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's just another way of saying that from the very beginning, God sovereignly chose to save you. Friends, this is the doctrine of election. And as we understand it here, we would say that this is the doctrine of unconditional election. That means that God didn't look into the future and see how you would respond and then determine based on that to choose you for salvation. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that we weren't chosen because we were somehow good enough or that we were better than the unbelievers all around us. Romans chapter 9, verse 15, it says that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion, so then it de- depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Salvation depends on God, not on you. The, the, the topic of election, as you know, often stirs up many debate, debates and many controversial conversations But listen, we need to realize that when Paul talks about God's sovereign election, unconditional election, it is to show the Thessalonians just how loved they are by God. Election is love language to the believer. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 again, it says, in love, God predestined us for adoption. Love was the motivating force behind God's sovereign determination to choose you. God choosing you is a demonstration of his love from eternity past. God chose to save you not because you are worthy or deserving, but simply because God loves you. That's it. It's unconditional. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with your merits. It has nothing to do with what kind of person you are. God simply chose to love you. And Christian, that is meant to stir you and move you 
to worship the Lord. We can see that God's saving work in your life was determined from eternity past, but it was actually accomplished in the present through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and your response to the truth. Look again at verse 13. God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here Paul tells us how we are actually saved. And first we see that we are saved by the divine work of the Holy Spirit. The the, the Holy Spirit of God is the agent that regenerates our hearts and causes us to be born again. It is through the Holy Spirit that we are made holy and devoted to God. It is through the Holy Spirit that we are sanctified and made to become more like Jesus Christ. But notice that Paul adds a second part to this. Yes, we are saved by the divine work of the Spirit of God, but mingled together with this is our belief in the truth. It is a human response to the truth of the gospel, which is ultimately empowered by the Holy Spirit as well. So God accomplished his saving work in your life when the Holy Spirit made you holy and caused you to believe in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and you believed in the truth when he called you through the preaching of the gospel. Okay, look there at verse 14. To this, and he's talking about this salvation, God, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that there was a point in your life where you heard the gospel, where you heard about Jesus Christ, the the, the man and the son of God who lived the perfect life and how he bore your sins in his body and how he died on the cross and rose again. You heard this gospel and it was through this, this human preaching the gospel or reading about the gospel that God called you and with an irresistible grace brought you into a saving faith with him. But notice that God's saving work doesn't just end with your conversion. God's saving work in your life was determined from eternity past. It was accomplished through your faith in the gospel in the present, and it will be perfected and consummated in the future when Jesus comes and we are glorified with him. Look at how verse 14 ends. Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that, okay, that here's the purpose of your salvation. Here's the end goal. Here's the finish line of God's saving work. It is so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obtaining the glory of Christ is really just another way of talking about future glorification. It's Christ's glory, his glory being put on you. It is the one who was raised from the dead, the very first fruits of the resurrection, and being resurrected with him. On that final day when Jesus returns, we will, all of us in Christ, be resurrected with new imperishable and immortal bodies that know no sin and know no suffering. This is our eternal destiny. It is the unbreakable chain of God's saving work in your lives. Just think about how Paul talked about his 
God's eternal saving work in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Just listen, okay? And he said, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The repetition in that verse is he, 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 he. It is all about God. You know what Paul is trying to to demonstrate here? He is trying to show you that salvation from beginning to end is all a work of God. This is the very real and very powerful love of God from beginning to end. Now, we just covered in a few minutes the doctrine of unconditional election, the doctrine of irresistible and invincible grace, the doctrine of conversion, and the doctrine of glorification. (laughs) Again, I realize that is a lot to take in, so if you want to know more, please sign up for Patrick's class. But for the purposes of today, let, let me just try to bring everything together and explain what Paul is doing here with this huge sweep of theological truths. To Christians who are suffering affliction... With these words, Paul is essentially calling on them to look above and beyond those dark and despondent clouds and see the one who is seated on the throne over the clouds. The storms of life, whether it be persecution, false teachings, temptations to sin, even tragedy and trials, whatever it may be, It is all but a moment and a vapor compared to God's love for you, which is from everlasting to everlasting. God's love for you will outlast the afflictions of this world. Do you know what that means? The devil can unleash his fiercest attacks. The man of lawlessness can be revealed. The great apostasy and rebellion can fall, can, can, can break out. The, the entire world can fall apart. And ultimately, it does not matter because there is nothing in this world that will thwart the eternal purposes of God to save you. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of the storms of life, you can always rest in God's saving work. Now, we need to be careful because this doesn't mean we can just let go and let God. What happens when you're in a boat and you're not holding tight when the storms are coming? You're going to get thrown off. So, on the contrary here, God's powerful and invincible saving work is meant to produce in you a greater confidence to plant your feet firmly and stand on God's secure word. So, here's point number two. Stand on God's secure word. Look, look at the logical progression, beginning with the words, so then. Okay, he, he, he's giving a result. He's giving a natural, logical next step to what he's just talked about. So then, because God has done an amazing saving work in your life, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is the main command of all of chapter 2. Everything that Paul has talked about from the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, is leading up and climaxing at this point. That's why I had Pastor Dwight read for us the entire chapter, because there's a whole flow to this. 
Just quickly look back at chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says there, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. You see, that's the prohibition side of this main commandment. When the waves of Satan's lies and the, and the winds of his deceits come crashing in, don't be troubled. Don't be moved. Don't be tossed to and fro by, by these winds and these waves. Rather, stand firm. Hold your ground against the world, the flesh, and all of the devil's evil schemes. And how do you stand firm? Well, you stand firm by holding fast to truth. Look again at verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and, he's putting these two ideas together, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, it's important for us to define what Paul means by traditions because that word can mean a whole bunch of different things to a whole bunch of different people. So, we need to first understand how Paul was using this word. When Paul talks about tradition, he is not talking about the practices and the teachings that are extra-biblical, meaning outside of the Bible. These are not man-made traditions. Jesus rebuked such traditions that were outside the scope of Scripture that were created by man. Let me give you one example here. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then uh, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he, that is Jesus, answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In that story, the Pharisees and the scribes had created practices that were never found in the Word of God, and Jesus rebuked them for it. In our day-to-day, we, we see a lot of this in places like the Roman Catholic Church, which is full of extra-biblical traditions. You have traditions like transubstantiation, penance, praying to the saints, the uh, purgatory, papal infallibility, and, and other teachings that find no basis in the Scripture. Okay, let, let me just be absolutely clear here. Paul is not calling on Christians to hold to traditions that are fabricated and designed by men. In this context, tradition refers to the teachings that the apostles received either by the person of Christ or by the Spirit of Christ. It refers to these teachings that they taught to the early church, and it is these teachings that were brought together and put together into the canon of Scripture that we have today. In other words, these traditions are God's sacred word. Paul and Jesus condemned the traditions of men, but we're talking about the traditions of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul said, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as uh, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So you see, what Paul taught the Thessalonians, what, what he passed down to them wasn't his own ideas. It was the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. Therefore, therefore, to stand firm 
And to hold fast in this world means being a biblical Christian. See, there is a wonderful simplicity to the Christian life. What I mean is there is no secret sauce when it comes to doing well as a believer. There is no profound mystery when it comes to maturing in the faith. There is no particular trick when it comes to faithfully enduring suffering. It is just being a Bible-knowing, Bible-believing, and Bible-obeying Christian. That is it. If you do that, if you are in the Scriptures regularly, taking God at His Word, trusting in His truth, and by His grace, seeking to live out all that He commands you to do, then you will live a God-pleasing, God-honoring, God-glorifying life. So no matter what happens, no matter what trials and difficulties come your way, don't loosen your grip on God's Word. Even when you don't feel like it, be in the Word. Your soul needs it. Even when you're having a hard time believing in God's Word, pray that the Lord would give you understanding and faith. Don't let the busyness of life uproot that spiritual discipline of being in the Word daily. Because the moment that you start to let go of that secure and eternal word will be the moment that you find yourself in real danger of falling out of the boat and being swept away into the chaos of this world. Be Bible-knowing, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying Christians. Now, if this letter has taught us anything if we have learned anything about the example of the Thessalonians, we've learned that following Jesus and obeying his commandments means hatred, persecution, suffering, and affliction will come. That's basically a guarantee. And to walk along that path of righteousness, to sail along that path of holiness can be a daunting and terrifying task but you can take heart knowing that you go with God's sweet comfort. That's point number three. Go with God's sweet comfort. If you were here from the beginning of the series, you'll remember that each chapter in this letter ends with a prayer. Chapter one ends with a prayer. Chapter two ends with a prayer. And chapter three ends with a prayer. And verses 16 and 17 are Paul's closing prayer for chapter two. In chapter 2, he has spent the time correcting their confusion about the second coming of Christ, and he has now called on them to stand firm and hold fast to God's truth in the middle of the storm of affliction. And now he prays, verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In this prayer, Paul first remembers in verse 16 all that God has done and how the Lord has, has given his eternal comfort. See, there, there, there's kind of loving generosity about God. If you look at verse 16, it says, the God who loved us and gave us there, there is loving generosity with God. 
And, and the Lord gave us a comfort and an encouragement that will never come to an end. That's what it says, right? He gave us eternal comfort. And I think in this context of the letter, he's primarily talking about what he said in verses 13 and 14, and God's saving work in your life from everlasting to everlasting. Once again, this is a reminder that God's love, that God's saving work, and the comfort that comes with it will outlast all of your afflictions. And so he, he's given you this eternal comfort, but he's also given you good hope through grace, which again, in, in the context of this letter, very clearly refers to the hope of Christ's second coming and how he will come to right every wrong and how he will condemn the wicked and how he will save and vindicate his people. And because the Lord has shown in the past such loving generosity, it builds in Paul a strong confidence to pray for present and future blessings. Specifically, Paul first prays that the Lord would comfort your hearts. Comfort your hearts. Just because God has given us eternal comfort doesn't always mean we know how to experience it, especially when the storms of life are at their worst. Eternal comfort is an objective truth, but how we feel often does one of these things. Doubts can get in the way. Distractions can get in the way. Sin, temptation, trials and tribulation, all of these things can cause us to suppress the comfort of God, which is there from everlasting to everlasting. And so Paul's very first petition is that the God who gave us eternal comfort would actually impress the comfort into our hearts so that we feel the comfort, that we feel the encouragement, that we feel the strengthening. He is praying that we would be encouraged and fortified on the inside. He's praying that we would be strengthened in our inner being. And then in addition to this, Paul prays that our hearts would be established in every good work and word. You see, what Paul is doing here right at, the, right at the end is he is praying for the whole person, for the whole being. He's praying for what our hearts feel on the inside and what our actions do on the outside. He's praying that the Lord would enable us and equip us to live lives of good works, both in what we do and in what we say, word and work. Friends, not only should these words deeply comfort you, but what they do is they set an example of how we ought to be praying for one another. As we're seeking to be Bible-knowing, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying Christians, pray that the Lord would encourage us all on the inside and enable us on the outside to live a life of good works and a life that is pleasing to Him. As I said in the beginning, living as a Christian in this world can feel a lot like you're riding on a small boat through the worst storms of life. And that's hard. And you have a call here to hold on to God's word for dear life. 
because the storms will hit hard and you're going to feel bent, broken, and bruised a lot of the times. But when it comes to the letter as a whole, the great hope that we have that is bound up in this text is the reality that Jesus will one day rend the skies open. Those dark clouds that have filled the sky, Jesus is going to roll back as a scroll. And Jesus is going to descend with all of his mighty angels. And on that day, you will obtain the glory of Christ, the resurrection of the body that is fit to be with and enjoy Jesus forever. That's the hope that you have as Christians. The storm will pass. The storm will pass. God's love will endure forever. And so you hold on, just hold on to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the storms of life will pass. They feel hard at times. They feel like it's just going to blow us right off the boat. But Lord, we hold on for dear life, remembering that it is ultimately you who keeps us in the faith. As much as we seek to have a death grip on the word of God, Lord, you have a death grip on us, and you will never let us go. Thank you for your saving work that you will bring to completion. And as you preserve us, oh dear God, give us much grace to persevere and to persevere well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.